Heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my comrade Derek Davison. Uh, and again, apologies for the audio. I'm so laid up with sciatica, but we are excited to welcome to the podcast Mike Brennis. Mike is a good friend of mine. He's also the interim director of the Brady Johnson program in grand strategy and lecturer in history at Yale University. Mike, thanks so much for joining us again, man. Thanks for having me back, guys. So we're going to start today's episode um, with the 1960s and onward. But before we do that, Mike, why don't you just give a bit of a context as to where we find ourselves in terms of the military-industrial complex in uh, the early 1960s, and maybe even talk for a little bit about uh, Eisenhower's farewell address mm-hmm. and the ironies of that farewell address, what it was expressing, and then we could uh, go from there. Sure. So. Uh- Post-Korean War, post-1953, there is obviously a drop in the defense budget. Again, as I, as I maybe mentioned last episode, but defense spending reaches 15% of GDP during the Korean War. That drops dramatically, of course. Uh, and this causes uh, a panic, as you would imagine, amongst uh, defense contractors looking for uh, new contracts now that this war is over. But they're somewhat relieved by, or at least some contractors are relieved by, the shift to um, ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missile production, and the general, amongst Eisenhower's, Dwight Eisenhower's focus, the general focus on sort of the arms race and maintaining deterrence against the Soviet Union. And so the post-Korean War period, yes, there's a, there's a demobilization that occurs, is dropping the defense budget, but the overall need again for this enterprise continues. And so Eisenhower is a very interesting figure for many reasons. He, he makes a couple of speeches in 1953, so his first year in office. Uh, one was called the Adams for Peace uh, speech, where he basically says all of the money that we're spending, spending on the military could be spent for other things. And when you spend money on an aircraft carrier or an airplane or you know, naval warship, you're, you're not spending money on hospitals, on schools, on things that you, we would classify as productive for, for, for society, uh, not missiles and, and planes and things. Uh, so he's actually, in many ways, when he gets into office, critical of this military-industrial complex. But as you kind of alluded to, the irony is, is that Eisenhower presides over the expansion of the military-industrial complex out of its traditional sort of industrial centers in the Northeast and in the Midwest. And the military industrial complex goes into the South, into the West, <clears throat> and into California, which becomes a booming uh, state in the 1950s uh, because of the ways in which the American military or, or defense, the Defense Department and Congress, obviously authorizing the military budget, allows for the growth of defense industries in, in new parts of the, of the country. Uh, in South Carolina, for instance, is, a, is another big state. The, there's one representative called Mendel Rivers, who's a Democrat from South Carolina. His nickname was like Rivers Delivers because he was constantly seeing the need for, and, and indeed uh, was right on, uh, for defense dollars in his district. Uh, there's a line that comes out of the 50s that says, one of his colleagues says, Mendel, if you put any more military bases 
in South Carolina, it's going to sink into the bottom of the sea. Like, you know, you just, you just can't uh, have this anymore. But anyway, to uh, sum up a little bit, Eisenhower, by the, by the late 1950s, is reflecting upon this, is reflecting upon the growth of the arms race, uh, the development of the, the thermonuclear weapon, uh, the kind of nuclear stalemate that's occurred uh, in, in between the United States and, and Soviet Union. And by 1961, as he's leaving office, as JFK is elected, nearly defeats um, Richard Nixon in the 60 election, he gives this farewell address where he says the greatest, one of the greatest threats to American democracy is what he calls the unwarranted influence of the military-industrial complex. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. Originally, he wanted to call it the military-industrial-congressional complex, um, but his speechwriters thought, his advisors thought, that's too much. You can't indict Congress because <laughs> that's going too far. Uh, so it became military-industrial complex. Um, and, and again, I, I just want to irony. pause on that for a second, sure. Mike, because the congressional part is actually crucial. The thing doesn't make sense yeah. without Congress, right? The whole point totally. that he was making is that Congress provides pork to these local industries. So I think it's kind of funny. And there's actually been some distortions, I think, that emerge from this framing, because when you frame it just as a military industrial complex, you're actually removing, in some sense, the official organs of the democratic state. And, and you're emphasizing the, the capitalist accumulation part of it without taking in, in, into account the democratic politics part of it, which is that these people need money from local lobbying groups. They need money from local boosters. They need to provide jobs to their constituencies. Um, so I just want to highlight that it, it, it is actually a crucial thing that they remove the congressional from the military industrial congressional complex. No, completely. And, and that, again, that's what interested me in this in this topic was the fact that this democratic process was allowed to create very anti-democratic ends, right? Or, or presumably a democratic process, right? That, that you have this anti-democratic entity within this presumably a, a democracy. Yeah. So Eisenhower takes that out, but there's, there's another kind of, I don't know if it's irony is the word, but uh, John F. Kennedy runs, some of you may know this, or listeners may know this, he runs in 1960 as kind of as a cold war hawk. He, he runs basically saying that there's a missile gap between the United States and the Soviet Union, that we haven't done enough to, to increase our military budget and the Soviets are on the march, et cetera, et cetera, trying to out-hawk Richard Nixon, who, who has a reputation, of course, by this point, by an anti as an anti-communist, um, as a red baiter, uh, too, um, as a congressman from California. Uh, and so when you get into office, you have this I would say national, if not international, focus on the military-industrial complex. You have a term for it now. There's now a critique of it, but there's also this this need, with, certainly within national security circles, for for keeping this because we supposedly have this missile gap, which JFK later acknowledges and his advisors acknowledge never existed. Um, but we can get into that in a bit if you want. Mike, I have a question. Um, I, I think people would probably, or, or many people would probably be familiar with uh, the consolidation that went on in the defense industry at the end of the Cold War through the 90s, and, and the distorting effects that may have had in terms of, you know, not just these larger companies having more resources to sort of lobby Congress and that sort of thing, but also in terms of the direction that 
the military, U.S. military spending took, uh, you know, in terms of weapon systems and whatnot. Was there anything analogous to that that took place in the wake of kind of the end of World War II and, you know, in this uh, period before things start to, to, the spending starts to build up again? Or is that not a good analogy to make? There's not the consolidation. I think the 1990s consolidation is pretty unique for reasons hopefully we can get to. But what happens in the 50s is that because there's a shift to high-tech weapons, so we don't need traditional ordinance for the war, like you saw during World War II, and just the, the, the quintessential kind of Roby, the, Rosie the Riveter you know, figure, that iconic figure, working-class person on the factory lines at the plant making you know, B-52 bombers. Now, when you're talking about ICM production and investment in, in research and development, new weapons, and this will become the story of the, of the post-1950s Cold War in general, ex- except for a, b- a brief blip blip during Vietnam, you start to see defense contractors who produce the, that traditional ordnance panic. And, and a lot of them start figuring out what to do, where to go, um, how they can reorganize. They don't, and this is a, this is a phenomenon, I think, that's endemic to the defense industry, they don't actually diversify. So you would think, okay, well, we can't fulfill defense contracts or we can't produce things for the United States government in the ways we could because of the shift in priorities. You would think like they would shift to new things outside of the defense industry, making non-defense products. They don't. They actually keep looking for a new market, which is very interesting to me that diversification is, is just off the table. And so you do have some case, in some cases, like, um, Republic Aviation, based out of Long Island, eventually going bankrupt in the 1960s because they're not able to keep up with this, this shift to ICBM and high tech. But for the most part, I mean, there's always winners and losers, but like Lockheed, for instance, which will, be, you know, will become Lockheed Martin, joined with Martin Marietta, Martin Marietta and Lockheed, um, Boeing, even to a certain extent. Um, these places, Raytheon, uh, makes out, make out quite well because of they're willing to kind of accommodate this, this new shift. And and there's not this sort of end reckoning in, in the ways that, that there would be in the 1990s, but there's still somewhat of, of a kind of a come to, come to terms with the moment with, with what, we're, what we're at right now. So, Mike, why don't we talk then a little bit about JFK and the JFK administration and, and what's going on there? Um, because from, from the, what I study, JFK is crucial because he essentially brings – he's really the institutionalization of expertise into the American military state. He brings all these guys from Rand. He brings McNamara. He, he changes the tenor of how foreign policy is made. It's a lot less organic, quote-unquote. It's a lot more egg-heady, quote-unquote. There's a lot more studies. There's a lot more scienti- sci- scientism around the administration. But, but what's going on with, with – one might say the hard power aspects of that, the, the material aspects of that with the MIC. Is there anything we need? Um, is there any connection there or what are your thoughts? So the main figure here is uh, Robert McNamara, JF Ken- John F. Kennedy's secretary of defense. McNamara, who, who will become more famous or infamous because of his role in the Vietnam War. Um, but in 60, 60- the, the guiding star for American <laughs> prestige, actually, <laughs> one, of our, one of our real idols. Uh, yeah. yeah great, great man. <laughs> he's, he's a whiz kid. Uh, it is kind of funny though, because in Mike and my field, like in the eighties, like someone like McNamara would be invited to these conferences, you know, it, it's, and, and uh, you saw a little bit of it, Mike, am I remembering right? Petraeus gave a keynote. Yes. At Schaefer. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Schaefer. So it's just kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's not a joke that, that, 
they stay involved in a way, even long after they're mm-hmm. uh, they're out of office. Sorry for that little uh, uh, no. What would it be soliloquy? <laughs> no, I mean that that's 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 the thing about someone like McNamara keeps he's part of the blob that that's before the blob. I mean, so McNamara is. Uh, in 1961, he's this—he's seen as this sort of expert as efficiency. He comes out of of Ford Motor Company, running running Ford. For that, he was a professor at Harvard, and McNamara sees everything in terms of efficiency. Like how much, how many, how many bombs do you need to blow up certain things, uh, and what type of armaments do you need to create the most effective damage with the least amount of, of weapons? And this is some 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 type of experience that he. It's born of his experience uh, during World War II when he basically worked for Curtis LeMay uh, doing that, figuring out how to bomb Japan during the firebombing of, of, of Japan in, in 1945, doing that most effectively. And if you watch this movie, if it's a great movie called The Fog of War, you see this uh, by Errol Morris, you see this in great detail. Anyway, so 1961, McNamara says, well, we don't need, if we're going to be shifting to ICBMs and uh, nuclear strategy being the focus of of our foreign policy. Well, we don't need to be producing a bunch of of planes that don't carry out that mission, or or uh, tanks and things like that. So he actually goes around with a kind of a red red pen and just starts cutting things that we don't that, that he feels the United States military doesn't need in '62. Uh, and as you can imagine, this angers a lot of people. And McNamara ever the Democratic figure that he is goes into these defense contractors, goes into these these defense communities, and says, "We're going to get you off the defense budget. Don't worry." Uh, and then immediately says, "Yeah, I know your job is being cut, and I know you're you're going to the unemployment line, but we're going to find something for you." Uh, and so this is kind of his his entire approach to the defense budget is that he believes that we can like maximize American military power through high tech development and missiles, et cetera eliminate other superfluous weapons that, that we don't need, and then just kind of say to Americans, damn the consequences, to people who have been depending upon this industry for 10 plus years, um, that's going to obviously create ripple effects in a democracy. It's going to echo in, in politics in various ways. But for now, I'll stop there just to say McNamara is, is kind of in charge of all this, this sort of shift uh, within the Kennedy administration. And also McNamara says there was no missile gap, as, as Kennedy claimed in 60, uh, and that he's, um, with surgical kind of precision to a certain extent, taking into account where the United States needs to spend money where it doesn't. And that's going to cause big problems for people who want to defend the military industrial complex and defend what it does for providing, providing mobility. So, Mike, is there any early '60s equiv- equivalent for uh, "Learn to Code"? <laughs> there, the, well, I mean, so you know this, but the 1958, the National Defense Education Act. I mean, that, that's that's this major investment by the by the federal government to create jobs in what we now call STEAM or STEM, STEM, STEAM. The idea of like sort of humanities education is not the best for you. That that comes out of of the sort of Cold War impetus to try to create jobs for more Americans who can start working in defense industries and developing like, universities, like the Cold War University. This is where it comes out of in the late 50s and early 60s. And, and Kennedy's team of people is very much enamored with that. You know, they think American ingenuity and no power, you know, manpower and brilliance is, is just has no limits, you know, um, which is one of the appeals, I think, of Kennedy and Kennedy's administration is that he's the new frontier, that kind of rhetoric. It, you know, has a lot of 
resonates well within American culture. Mike, do you have any comments about the Kennedy assassination and its <laughs> relationship to the military industrial complex? Or should we just talk about how Vietnam affects the whole thing? Uh, yeah, let's talk about Vietnam. Yeah, it's, it was Oswald. That's what I'll say. So Vietnam, let's, uh, so Kennedy, <laughs> so Johnson, Kennedy's, Kennedy dies, Johnson um, escalates in 64, 65. What does this mean for the military industrial complex? So I'll back up a little bit uh, into 63 before the Americanization of the war in 64, 65. So before Gulf of Tonkin, August of 64. So post JFK assassination, post November 1963, I'll get to that. But pre November 1963, really from 1962 to 1963, there's actually this really interesting moment in American politics within Congress where congressional officials are realizing, well, maybe we should start thinking about defense conversion for the first time, really, in 15 years. Let's start thinking about converting defense production into civilian purposes. And so you have these commissions formed in Congress. One was uh, co-formed by in the Senate by George McGovern, who later become candidate for president in 1972, a Democrat from South Dakota, and uh, Warren Magnuson actually was a Democrat from Washington state. So they come together to kind of think about how we can convert defense plans to civilian purposes. So making what we now call it green jobs or environmental jobs. And this is McGovern's big thing in, in 60, when he was elected to the Senate um, in 63, that was his major concern was, was getting the United States off of an of a exorbitant defense budget. And so Vietnam kills that moment. 64, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, where you have the escalation of troops um, in Vietnam after 64, I mean, John F. Kennedy had already sent, you know, tens of thousands of military advisors to Vietnam by this point. So the war is already escalating. But after 64, when it, fe- when it feels like Vietnam is, when Johnson's kind of already made up his mind that we're going to go to war, that's when things start to turn. And that's when, by, by, by March of 65, into the remainder of 65, you start seeing the military industrial complex, again, shift towards this, this new war, to, toward a more traditional war that's going to produce you know, through Operation Rolling Thunder, the bombing campaign that characterizes Vietnam, that's going to produce um, lots of heavy, heavy um, aircraft and things like that that went into previous wars like Korea and and Vietnam. You're going to have you're going to see as you do um, more Americans recruited for jobs in like working class positions or like less skilled positions within the defense industry, making like three dollars an hour um, to produce um, munitions. Um, that is going to mean you have a defense uptick to about 9% of GDP, where you drop to about 6 or six or 7%, even maybe less, uh, up to about 9% of GDP by 1966, 1967. Um, so it makes, and defense contractors are admitting this, it, says it, it actually saved a lot of them from bankruptcy. And also coinciding with that, you have the uh, rush for the Apollo mission in, in the 1960s, John F. Kennedy saying we need to get a man uh, on the moon. Um, that's also creating jobs for defense contractors in in New York, for instance, in Long Island. Um, so, so the Vietnam years were pretty good years for the defense industry. What a surprise! <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> stunning, stunning. Um, 
uh, is anybody make starting to make the the conscious connection between defense spending and the broader economic picture in the United States at this point, or is it something that develops over this period? I mean, are there are people starting to kind of put these things together consciously? I guess you know, rather than just sort of you know spending on the military and these these sort of things happen uh, when you do that. Yeah, I mean, there, there, so there's always there's always the left. <laughs> there's always the left that's that's pointing out the fact that we're relying increasingly on militarism for jobs. And so, you know, SDS and the formation of SDS, like that's that's kind of a key moment in the Port Huron statement. You know, where they basically say this Cold War is 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 sapping funds from American coffers for the military and and away from projects of social justice, et cetera. So there's always the left. And there, and and again, the sort of the sixty-two, sixty-three moment. There are a few senators like George McGovern. Uh, there are also others like uh, Wayne Morse, um, for instance, who's who's kind of thinking about defense conversion and like it shouldn't we shouldn't have to rely upon jobs to rely, rely upon the military for jobs. But there's not this. There's not a systematic critique. There's not this. A full, I mean, I would say an awakening of sorts until the late '60s, when Vietnam starts to become a quagmire. After '68, does '1969, then you have arguments by uh, like John Kenneth Galbraith, who's a very famous liberal economist, saying we should just nationalize the entire defense industry, just take it out of private hands, make sure it's under government control, because people shouldn't be profiting off of this. And that's when you start to see the, this new or renewed focus on the military industrial complex as a having, of course, pejorative you know, connotations and, and people criticizing it and saying, because of the war going so, so poorly, uh, most Americans don't support the war, saying that we should, we should cut, the, cut the size of the defense budget, get Americans off the military spending and start converting on a, on a more massive scale. Mike, this might be a bit in the weeds, but uh, but what specific ad- elements of the military-industrial complex were strengthened during Vietnam, or was it just blanket? Like, did did, did um, airframe manufacturers benefit? Did the Navy? Did did boat manufacturers benefit? Did, did particular weapons manufacturers benefit? Was it across the board, or, or do you see the actual U.S. strategy, you know, benefiting people connected to the defense contractors connected more to the Air Force? or those, those more connected to the Navy. I, I wonder if we could talk about that for a second. I mean, I, I would say across the board, there's a general up, there's an overall uptick. You know, I mean, again, there's, 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 it's not like the Vietnam War makes it so that we deprioritize like high tech, like R and D monies for R and D don't drop off until like the 1980s, 1970s. You know, there's a continuing investment in the future of American power. So scientists, engineers, people like that um, are very much, you know, benefiting um, from from this from this uh, complex. So that means like those people are concentrated in places like Massachusetts, right? That makes sense, right? Like Route uh, what's it Route one twenty eight uh, Massachusetts, where you have like all of these contractors, subcontractors for the military, and lots of mostly white uh, upper class men working for the defense industry. Increasingly critically, critically examining that role, anyways. But then, in the South and in the West, where you have new sites of, of industrial production, they're benefiting well. I would say the Air Force, if I recall correctly, the Air Force, the people who are making um, sort of bombs, munitions, 
those people benefit a lot. Like, like in places like in the Midwest, like Indiana, for instance, like these, these smaller Midwestern states. But I think the, mo- the one of the more interesting also phenomenon here in the 60s is that the defense industry starts to organize more politically. They start to actually form organizations within like the National Association of Manufacturers. Um, they start to become more uh, active in politics in a more insidious way through, you know, what we call like political action committees now, but they're not really political action committees. Um, but like NAM, for instance, is, is, you know, has within its, its uh, organization, like a sub chapter of defense contractors, which is a bit too in the weeds, but this is called CODESIA, um, which is like, I don't have to get into it, but it's these group of, it's this group of defense industry, you know, CEOs and, and officials who, start this like political camp, this PR campaign saying what Eisenhower really meant by the military industrial complex and trying to reframe the narrative around, uh, of American, the American military and American defense, American defense budget saying, well, you know, we actually serve a, a broader good in, and we shouldn't be criticized for, uh, our role in Vietnam because we don't really have one, et cetera. And, uh, we just provide weapons for the military, for the government, because they asked for them, we're kind of a passive actor in this whole process. Uh, but that, that, that to me is also very interesting. And this will pay dividends more in the 1970s when the defense industry is kind of even more so on the ropes in the early 1970s because of, again, this reckoning with Vietnam and what that means for them. Uh, so it's, it, people materially, materially overall benefit some more than others. But again, in terms of like the military industrial complex as, as like a political entity that can organize and mobilize behind political candidates uh, and defend itself uh, out there in uh, American culture, like that's when this really starts to become very clear to me, uh, at least having done the research for the book. Mike, that actually leads perfectly into my next question, but we, which centers on how exactly do these people lobby over the course of the 40s and the 50s and the 60s? Because there's official lobbying, you know, which I know has a lot of laws around it, but there's also getting drunk at the bar, yeah. with, you know, the head of Douglas Aircraft or going on right. quail hunting uh, ex- excursions. And one thing that always that always sticks out to me is I believe on Pearl Harbor Day on December 7th, 1941, the head of Douglas Aircraft and the head of the Army Air Forces, which were not independent at the time, found out about it and they were on a quail hunt together, <laughs> which to me is just so perfectly symbolic. But I'm just wondering, mm-hmm. how does this actually, how do you actually, what is, what is the mechanism of convincing a congressperson to support funding your division at Raytheon? Like, how does, how does this actually work over the course of the 40s and the 50s and the 60s? And I imagine, how does it, change is it, is it mostly informal social events or is it these formal uh exchanges i'd love to hear more about that so i i would say yeah it occurs in a variety of different ways like, the, like how you go from feeling like you don't have a, an influence uh, or a defense contractor doesn't have an influence with the congressional official or with congress to actually having one i think one way it occurs which is kind of already what we talked about which is people in general getting upset by the fact that their jobs are getting cut when they depend upon the military so congressional officials respond to constituent pressure, right? That's just sort of a, an elemental, like basic, uh, ingredient of this process. People lose their job. They see the economic alternatives. They don't like them. They, they write to their congressman, they write to the, or they write to their president or whatever it may be. Uh, and they say, I don't, I don't want to lose my job. 
uh, I, I need, I need to have this, um, you know, this, this industry in my, uh, in my district. Uh, and it's not just the people who are dependent upon the defense industry. It's the people who are providing coffee for the workers who are, you know, people who are mowing the lawns for, for workers, like all these different things that add up to a, to an economy in a local and national sense. When, when people start to feel the negative effects of this industry leaving, they, they mobilize. And this, this occurs in a variety of different ways. You can, in an individual sense, as I talked about, but also in a collective sense where, like I read, I read editorials from local newspapers addressing congressional officials saying, don't like, how dare you just eliminate this contract for this plane uh, when we've been making it for five, 10 years, right? And that, that gets people's attention. That gets congressional officials' attention. So there's that way, but then in terms of the like the industry lobbying itself, so uh, that's what I found more kind of more organized. So it is this sort of informal social event stuff that happens in the 40s and 50s, but now what's happening in the 60s is like Melvin Laird, who's Secretary of Defense uh, under Nixon, is actually going and giving speeches to a group of defense contractors affiliated with NAM. Like there's actually private meetings that uh, you know between um, business officials. Uh, and and people on the right who kind of are are cozy to to, to the defense industry, meaning that um, I often found that like right leaning right leaning figures, conservative figures, inviting members of of who are affiliated with the military industrial complex in for speeches and things like that, uh, and that's obviously an informal way to kind of get your point across. Um, and all these things kind of add up, right? So there's the constituent pressure. There's the fact that people are losing their jobs. Uh, and then there's the opportunities that that defense contractors have in the 60s to mobilize. But thing, things really take off. We'll, we'll, we'll get into this now, but in the 70s. And that's when you start to see um, political action committees formed, like the kind of gross, conspicuous lobbying that that occurs um, through these um, third-party entities. Because as you think, there are laws barring like the going back to World War One, laws barring uh, defense contractors from overtly inf- interfering in, in in the democratic process, but it, it happens through these kind of like again these democratic means this, that leads to these anti democratic ends. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but but just to say like this is why the, the, in- the industry to me is so powerful and enduring because it can operate on these multiple levels, you know, to influence policy outcomes, influence democratic outcomes. And there's nothing illegal about it. Um, when you would say, you and I would say, I would say it shouldn't be the situation where the secretary of defense is allowed to kind of come into a group of, of into a meeting or a speech and give a speech for a defense in front of defense doctor saying, we've got your back. We're sorry that Congress is cutting the defense budget don't worry, we're doing our best. Like that's a clear separation between sort of private and public that I think should exist, but it doesn't. Maybe I'm just naive, but yeah. Just a quick factual question. Is there any limits on profits? Because there were previously in the 20th century limits on the amount a defense contractor could actually make off of war, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly. Is there anything like that after World War II or no? I don't believe so, but uh, I might be wrong. Good, that's awesome. I might be wrong. Um, Uh, I think I think you're right, which is why I'm I'm asking. We're going to have Mark Wilson on. He'll know. Oh, cool. <laughs> He'll, yeah, know He'll know all the details. Mark will, um, yeah. Mark will definitely know. Um, and then another question that I have: Is there anything going on in terms of partisan politics? Because I'm thinking about my research on the Rand Corporation, and one of Rand's major selling points was that they're above partisanship. They're they're nonpartisan. 
um, yeah. or, or something along those lines. So I was wondering if, if, if the military industrial complex takes a similar tack. Um, is there any association with particular p- political parties that, that do develop? Can we talk for a second about that? Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, so this kind of goes back to your earlier question, but for much of the fifties, there's, there's this delicate kind of balance that, that the military industrial complex pursues with Congress. Cause they don't want to antagonize congressional officials, both on, on, you know, both Democrats and Republicans, they don't want to alienate them um, because they see, obviously, if they have a good relationship with Congress, they have a, they have a better chance of, of getting what they want. Um, that starts to change, of course, also in the 60s, you know, going back to like the theme of the podcast. That changes because um, you see Democrats as not wholly, but as more of a block of within the party. There's a growing block within the party. Some of those Democrats very critical of the military, critical of Vietnam, you know, realizing that things can't continue as they have been during the Cold War. And you have this breaking point. It's, it's an overall breaking point within the nation, like of, of a fracturing of Cold War liberalism. Um, the idea that the United States can pursue communists to the ends of the earth. And, you know, there's no limit to what the American military can do, both in terms of spending, but also in terms of its capabilities, right? Like this is, this is where this, this moment comes crashing down and, and some Democratic officials who are smart realize this. Um, and so this is when you start to see the like the, the kind of more more formal lobbying of the of the defense industry shift to the right uh, and shift to Republicans being kind of their savior in many ways, like where you have this need for the defense industry to kind of, to kind of save itself, uh, you know, from 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 the critique of Vietnam. But what I what I still found was that Democrats, despite all of that, in Congress know that they need the defense industry in their districts. Like, so they're very, what I call, and this is not a great term, but what I call anti-militarist Democrats in Congress who by the 1970s and 1980s are saying two things at once. One is that we should stop spending untold amounts of money on the military to go pursue Imperial ventures abroad, but also don't cut the production of the submarine in my district. Like this goes back to like Derek's question, like last episode about the Seawolf submarine. You have these these sort of anti-militarist, anti-interventionist Republicans who critique everything that the Republican does on a foreign policy, but yet in the very substance of things, they're allowing the material conditions that create that foreign policy to to thrive. And the MIC knows that. The defense lobby knows that. So it's a matter of, I think, to kind of answer your question the defense industry being more savvy about how it gears its lobbying, who it directs it towards, and what does that mean for kind of rebuilding its image within American culture? I would argue that it kind of failed in many ways, considering what happens in the 70s. But it, it, it doesn't matter that it fails because, you know, the, the overall shift to the right in American politics allows for this industry to, to again, thrive and and not just survive, but thrive uh, in new ways uh, as we go into the 1970s, out of the 1960s, where again, this critique is, is ever present, uh, omnipresent. And that, that's, I think, gonna, it's not going to bode well, of course, for American democracy and American politics um, as we start thinking about what comes after Nixon and our future. But anyway, I'll stop there. So Mike, this brings us naturally to my favorite subject, the new left. And the new left responses to the military industrial complex. So just to give people a bit of background, obviously we're all familiar with the anti-Vietnam war protests, but, but along with these protests are a a sub 
a subset of these protests actually involve um, protesting uh, campus buildings, campus bodies that connected university researchers to the military intellectual complex and the military industrial complex. Um, there's a great book by a scholar named Joy Rohde titled Armed with Expertise that really goes into this. So anyone who's interested should check that out. But effectively what happened is that a lot of these groups were chased effectively off campus uh, and they and, it, and that, that wound up actually just embedding them more within the deep state, the secret state, whatever you want to call it. And, and so ironically, there was some sort of oversight, or at least people had some idea what was going on when these groups were on campus. But once they were forced off, then they kind of disappeared from public view. So Joy Rohde, uh, if I remember correctly, argues that there's kind of an irony there. But but Mike, what's going on in terms of the actual military industrial complex? How is that, or how is that not affected by... Um, the uh, 68 and earlier and, and later as well, uh, anti-Vietnam War student protests. Yeah, well, I mean, the new, again, like the new left is kind of always, you know, going back to the late 60s, it's always been there, you know, and, and, it, and it grows during the anti-war, uh, as, the, as the anti-war movement grows after 65. And it's contained, as you're saying, as you, as you said, to college campuses, it's, but it attracts a lot of media attention. And it, and it does some things that are that are effective in terms of, uh, public displays against the war, like Robert and McNamara trying to visit the Harvard campus in, I think, 1965 and basically being chased out uh, of Harvard uh, into his car where he, like the student protesters start like shaking the car back and forth to the point I think he had to like get on the top of his car and like try to calm, talk to the protesters, talk them down. This was a kind of huge event. And this was in 65. So just as the war becomes Americanized. Um so the new left is 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 active and and has been active um, for quite some time, uh, but then after the Tet Offensive in '68, after January of 1968, when you have this major like Southeast South Vietnam uh, along with North Vietnam, like the NLF and and the North Vietnamese Communists, like had this coordinated attack against uh, American military in- installations and bases, and it's seemingly a turning point in the war because even though it's a military victory, like the United States is is losing the war and seemingly losing the war and it is losing the war. Um, so after January 68, no one's going to support the Americans won't support the war as a majority. And that's a galvanizing point for the new left. Like that's, that's kind of verification legitimizing what the new left has been saying for the past five years, you know, four or five, five, six years at this point. And within American universities, there's this, or I would say the new left is kind of organizing within universities, but this recognition that the Vietnam war is not going to go well, having now been accepted within broader culture, like the new left kind of, I guess you can put it, it receives, receives elite attention. So this is where you get like the Vietnam moratorium, like, you know, the, the fact that like George McGovern and others like speak at the Vietnam moratorium uh, and the new left kind of, there's always factions within it, but it has, has this kind of presence that is, is very much visible within American politics. I don't want to say that that, that brings down like the Viet, like the new left ends the war or that it leads to this wholesale rejection of the military industrial complex that obviously doesn't happen. But I think for the purposes of my book, this was like the late 1960s was the time where anti-militarist politics could have 
had their most impact, um, where there actually was this moment, and you see it reflected in Congress, where congressional officials start eliminating programs that would not have been eliminated like five years earlier. Um, like the SST, which is a supersonic transport port plane, which is like breaks, breaks the sound barrier, like that gets defeated, doesn't get funded in Congress. Um, there are other programs in Congress that just don't see the light of day because of the critique of Vietnam. And you have people like Stuart Symington, who's this Democrat from Missouri, actually, who's very much kind of supportive of the war shift in, into more of an, uh, like an anti-war position and, and critique the ways that America has been spending its, its money on the military. So if you want to see this kind of reflected in politics, the new left reflected in politics, I think the 69 to 71 moment is key. Uh, but then 71, uh, we're going to talk about the 60s now, but like in the 70s, things don't turn out the way that they could have turned out because of, of what happens within American foreign policy and American politics and the rise of the right uh, as it relates to the, to the military industrial complex. So Mike, we haven't spent much of this episode talking about the civil rights movement, but it actually does play a role in the story. So maybe you could explicate how. Yeah. So, um, when civil rights, I mean, the civil rights movement, uh, has earlier origins, of course, but in 63, 64, when Lyndon Johnson comes into office, he starts supporting the uh, Civil Rights Act, which Kennedy supported um, before his assassination, but Johnson says he's going to make sure it passes. Indeed, it does. Uh, in uh, August of 1964, uh, Johnson then says he's going to support the Voting Rights Act or, or basically tells the movement to go out and give me a call to support the Voting Rights Act, and you do. You have, you know, March of Selma, uh, you have, uh, you know, kind of the high point of the civil rights movement in the 64, 65 period. And even before that, when you have, you know, uh, the uh, protests by uh, SNCC in 61, you have the sit-ins, um, you have, uh, you know, civil rights making gains uh, in the 60s. These, these all play a role in uh, defenders of the military and military industrial complex saying, why are we spending so much money or so much focus on civil rights when the preeminent threat to the United States is still communism and still the Soviet Union and China too, of course now. But what happens is what I start to see, what I saw in the research for the book was that similar to the, the you know, late 40 period, late 40s, early 50s, now you start to see these kind of hawkish Republicans and Southern Democrats getting animated by the fact that the military is getting short shrift because of civil rights issues and domestic politics. And this allows them to galvanize people on the right um, who, because of, of what's happening in 64 with Barry Goldwater and Barry Goldwater, Republican Senator from Arizona, very conservative Senator. Um, they start mobilizing around this idea that the United States is not spending enough on the military and spending too much focus on civil rights. And so, this I, I say is is kind of a prelude to what happens in in the eighties, seventies, and eighties, and even now, where we have this argument about like guns versus butter, which is a stupid argument. I mean, like either we can spend more in the military or more on social welfare spending. Like this is to me where the this is Cold War era logic that doesn't make sense. I do think that the United States should be spending more on projects of social, what I would say, consider social good, like you know, ameliorating. Ending racism, 
you know, ameliorating economic inequality, all those things, they require money. But the idea that we, we can't spend, we have to spend money on one thing, that, that if we spend money on one thing, we can't spend money on another thing. We have to make these like these zero sum choices. That's the sort of the logic of, of, of these like Cold War anti-communist hawks that really come to be a formidable block in the 60s in American politics. And so as you start to see Southern Democrats move into Republicans, people like Strom Thurmond, for instance, who's a bit of an anomaly at this time, but Strom Thurmond, this Democrat from South Carolina, shift to the Republicans um, in the 60s over civil rights issues uh, and the conservative block within the Republican Party growing stronger because of, of their anti-communism and their militarism. And this becomes, I think, a, a big problem for how we think about politics, particularly related to projects of, of social welfare and uh, getting Americans to support them uh, within a context that, within an American context that depends upon an ever-growing limitless defense budget. Michael Brennis, my sweet, sweet Michael Brennis. Thank you, Dan. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you again soon. Bye. It's always a pleasure. Take care.